Uh, I'm going to share, we're going to be in uh, Philippians, the first chapter, uh, verses uh, 3 through 6. Well, maybe I wasn't going to need these, but I'm going to have to pull them out after all, I think. But it's Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. In this passage, uh, Paul writes, and he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Is a Faber, we, we begin to plan this week, and uh, Faber asked me to share a scripture, and I, I began to look uh, for something that would be maybe a, appropriate to share with the congregation, but also something that would be along the theme of this reunion uh, that we're, we're getting together for the all these summer missionaries from all those years in the past. Uh, I've kind of been through a season of reunions. Uh, we were going to we were in Africa serving for most of 30 years. Uh, you know, when, you, when you're going away that long, you lose touch with a lot of people. In some sense, it's, it felt like we lost touch with everybody, and then we would come back a year, and we'd see some people kind of get things back together, and then you go away again, and you lose touch again. <clears throat> and some people we just totally lost touch with. We came, we retired, we came back, retired from the mission board, uh, about a little, nearly eight years ago, and uh, we came back in 2016 and uh, was on staff at First Baptist Church in Texarkana uh, until this past year, and we would slowly run back in touch, you know, come back in touch with people. And something I noticed was that when some people you would meet them, and I'm, I'm talking about believers, some of them would be pastors that I had pastored near or somebody I went to school with, and something I noticed is that sometimes you would meet people, and always as Christians, there was fellowship there, and there was just, it was a joy to see them again, and an excitement in that, and uh, you were glad, and then you went away, and it was kind of, that was it, it was, that was a good thing. And others, you would meet them, and it's just like a shot of adrenaline for your soul. Just being with them just filled you up, and, and just really lifted you up. And so we'd been going through that. We had a reunion in our a church that I went to the uh, mission field from. Uh, was, uh, they had their 140th year, 40th year uh, anniversary, and uh, they looked us up kind of like we had to look up. Nobody knew where I was or any of the, or we were, and they, they looked us up. A lady called us and said, man, I finally tracked y'all down, and we're having a reunion. We want y'all to come. And so we went, and uh, I, I didn't know who would remember us, but it was kind of that same thing. Uh, there were people there that had been children when I was pastor, and they had grown up and were serving the Lord, and uh, people that we had known that we'd minister to, and some that had been saved there that I'd baptized. Uh, it, but that was exciting. It, it was interesting because some of those people, it was exciting to see everybody, but there were some of those that, that I had really, had really ministered to me, and we had really worked together. And again, it was just that, it, it just really renewed me to be with them. Some, it was good to see them, and you were okay to go, and others, I want to see them again. I want to get with them again, and it, that was just there, and it's kind of that unique thing of fellowship, and then there was Guy Faber McMullen. I mean, who? there's not that many of those guys in the world, and uh, he put on my li uh, LinkedIn uh, account. I never look at that, and uh, but he, I got a message across my screen saying Faber McMullen has sent a message to you, so I looked that thing up, 
And he said, I want to be in touch. I sent him my number. He called me, and uh, he came to see us. And Debbie uh, came that down and, and uh, was with us in Longview. And that was that kind of time. It was just after, uh, after that day was over, it was hard to go to sleep. I was just so pumped, and it was so exciting. I, somebody I'd wondered about and, and somebody I'd, I'd you know, had remembered very well and, and had learned things from Faber that summer, and then all of a sudden he's there. And uh, we just had that time. And so as I thought about that, I said, I, I would like to explore that. What is it that makes some fellowship, uh, you know, just so real and, and so meaningful? And it's not that the other isn't good, and that it isn't something, but they're just a, something special that comes into a relationship with certain believers. And I'd like to see what that is. I did some uh, study of the word fellowship. And I, I, I had a, a New American Standard concordance the first time I went through, and I looked at all the verses in the New Testament where, where, where fellowship was mentioned, and uh, I, I, I couldn't pick up anything. And I, so I laid it down. I had some other places to preach, and so I laid that aside. And then I got kind of back where I had time, and I looked at it again. But this time, I was using the New American Standard uh, concordance, and this passage popped up when I did that. And I had not seen it before this way. And especially the phrase in that fifth chapter, for your fellowship in the gospel. And that phrase stuck out to me because some of you, if you're looking at the New American Standard or you're looking at the NIV or some of the newer translations, that's translated for your partnership in the gospel. And I, I think that's how I'd always seen it. Paul was talking about how the Philippians were close to him and how they supported him and how they worked along with him. And this, that's a lot of the theme of what Philippians is about. And so I'd always seen it that way, and this trying to find fellowship and this fellowship of the gospel and for it to be in that place where it wasn't supposed to be to me really stuck out to me. And I, so I looked it up and did a word search on fellowship, and I said, maybe I've got the wrong word. And the word is koinonia. Uh, the, the word that we, you know, is very recognized as being the word for fellowship, but it was used as partnership in that in that other, those other versions in in, in many places. So I, I did a word study on it, and and, and came up with some things that it has, it has a very very broad kind of meaning. And so I wanted to look at, I, as I read this passage, I decided that this is something I, I really wanted to look at. This whole thing, the concept that Paul brought up. This fellowship in the gospel. And some of the things he says around it, I think, are a correlation. It's not like a formula. If you do this, you'll have this or, or anything. But there's correlation in all of that for the experience that I think we've had in coming back together and the experience in fellowship that we've had, uh, that I've, I've experienced since we've been back from the field in, in, in so many different times. There's two ingredients uh, to this whole idea of, of fellowship in the gospel. Uh, two words. Two ingredients that make that up. The first one is the word fellowship. And this is really where I got started on this. You know, you ask most of us uh, as Baptists, as I grew up especially, uh, what fellowship was. And the thing that pops in your mind, if you wanted to give it a definition, it's something where you get a bunch of believers together in a large room, probably called the fellowship hall, and you have fun together. You do something that's, you know, they play games or you do things that are entertaining or, or something and, you, and you, you enjoy one another's presence. And it usually involves mass quantities of food. And that's my favorite part. You can look around the room and see those of us who really enjoy fellowship in that form. 
But you know, I, that is fellowship. It is a very important kind of fellowship. But what I discovered as I looked at the word, uh, the, the word koinonia has a very broad kind of, 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 uh, of, of meaning. And because of that, it's translated in the New Testament in different ways. Different versions will give, just like it's fellowship in the, go- in the gospel here, and it's partnership in the gospel also. Uh, those are the nuances in the, in, in the meaning, and as the translator comes to a passage like this, they have to decide what do we really think Paul was trying to say here in this context. And so it, it, uh, some of them say partnership. The word fellowship, or koinonia, means fellowship. It, it, it's translated as partnership. It means communion. Uh, you know, you share the Lord's Supper. Uh, that's a fellowship. You're doing something together like that. That's a, that's a very real form of fellowship. It's association, uh, contribution. Some of the offerings, the love offerings in the New Testament are described as koinonia, and they'll be translated as an offering or something like that, a contribution, but it's this word. And so it, it, it carried that kind of uh, meaning. The, 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 the phrase that defined it that I really picked up on that really meant the most to me was the shared participation. And I thought that kind of pulled that together for me. So that's kind of the idea I'm coming off of as, as I look at fellowship in the gospel today. We're talking about a shared participation in the gospel, something we do together. Now, the other word, uh, the other ingredient in this is uh, <clears throat> the word gospel. And we pretty much know that. Paul, I think one of the greatest definitions in the, the Bible is what Paul gave us in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also uh, you received, in which you stand, and by which also you are saved. If you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then verse 3, he really gets, starts moving into the definition. He said, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that he was buried. Uh, that, that Christ died for us sins according to the God, the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, in that verse 3, Paul just boils it down to the very most basic ingredients about the, what the gospel is. The word gospel means good news, and that good news includes the fact that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and He rose again. And uh, that has to be expanded a lot, and it can be, it can be expanded you know, it just without limit. But if you want to take it down to the very most basic form, Paul says it's that. And that's the gospel. And uh, the, so we have this fellowship of the gospel, which is fellowship, this joint participation in what is defined here as the gospel and, and the effect that Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection has on us. Now, there's uh, not just the, 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 the ingredients here, but there are dimensions uh, to what I, and I kind of discover here about the fellowship of the gospel. Uh, they, there's different levels of that. Now, the first one is fellowship of the gospel is that which we have because we have, res- we have believed the gospel. And we've accepted it. You know, when I was a little boy, I came to understand the gospel, and I accepted Christ as my Savior. I believed the gospel. I received it. Then there were benefits that came to me as a result of that. Uh, you know, and we, we, we can name those. There's just all kinds of things. We, well, salvation. Uh, 
Paul says here in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 1 through 4, uh, the, the first of that passage, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, in which also, by which also you are saved. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. You know, when we believe the gospel, one of the things it brought into us is salvation. And then just think of all of that, that that brings to us. I mean, we have eternal life. We have forgiveness of sin. Uh, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we just go on and on of all the marvelous and tremendous benefits that come to us through salvation because we have believed the gospel. But those are all things that come to us. Now, because I've received the gospel, that's in me. That's a reality in my life. That's a huge chunk of who I am now. And because you've believed the gospel, that's a reality in you. And so when you and I come together there's a level of fellowship that just automatically exists because you've been saved and I've been saved. We've both been impacted the same way by the gospel. And that just brings us together. Uh, we've lived in Longview, the, the place where we live just not quite a, a year now. We retired from Texarkana and moved to be with grandkids. And uh, we're, we're still pretty new in our neighborhood and we're, meet, we're still meeting people. And it's really interesting, you, you know, people will come by to meet us or we'll be walking and see someone and introduce ourselves and you can almost tell from the beginning those that are believers and those who aren't. But then once you broach that subject and if they find out you're a believer and you find out they are, it just lights up. There's a fellowship. There's a warmth there. The whole atmosphere of the conversations and everything change as a result of that. That's fellowship of the gospel on this dimension. It's a fellowship that if, if we don't have that when we get around other believers, something is wrong. We have this tremendous thing that we have in common that has changed our lives, that has made us new creatures, that has helped us and has caused us to be what we call born again. And if that doesn't make fellowship, and if we don't have some warmth there because of that, then something is really, really wrong. But there's another dimension to this, and that is the dimension where not only have we received the gospel, but we take fellowship of the gospel to the next level and that's where we begin to fellowship together and getting the gospel out to other people and taking it to others. <clears throat> Paul said in Matthew, well, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, he gave us our working orders. He gave, our, gave us our job description as believers. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded uh, I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That, that's a commission that's been given to each and every believer. And there's, I think, whenever we come together, and, uh, and 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 when we do that commission, and we really are are, are make it a priority, where we're in joint participation. Uh, going out and, and being involved in what it takes to get that commission out to the world, then that's bringing fellowship of the gospel to this next level, getting, getting it on that next dimension. You know, Paul, when he went to Philippi, he only had one reason to be there. He wasn't on a business trip and decided to do some witnessing and start a church while he was there. There was nothing else that brought him. The only reason he was in Philippi was to share the gospel 
and to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That was it. Paul was driven by that. For most of his life, that's the only reason he did anything, was that he was so burdened and so driven uh, to get the gospel to people. And so he showed up in Philippi. That was his purpose. And he did that. And people came to the Christ. And as they came to Christ and they entered into that first dimension of fellowship of the gospel, the people in Philippi picked up on his passion. And they were beginning to share the gospel. And when Paul left Philippi, they supported him. They wanted to be a part of what he was going to do as he took that to somebody else. And, and they were supporting him financially. And they were praying for him. But not only that, there's good evidence all through the book of Philippi, Philippians that they began to, to, to share the gospel. And they were as passionate about it, passionate about it as Paul was. You come down to the end of this first chapter, and Paul talks to them about the same kind of suffering they were going through as a result of sharing the gospel that he was going through. And they became, in a very real way, joint participants of Paul. They were in that sharing of the gospel with him. This, this was a fellowship of the gospel on that kind of deep kind of level. These guys came to Brownsville 46 years ago. The only reason they were there, the only thing that brought them there was at some level, at some point, they had a burden for getting the gospel to people that were needy and didn't have an opportunity to hear it. They could have been doing all kinds of other things. They could have been going to getting a lucrative job, you know, it helped earn some money to help pay for uh, their education at A&M, wherever it was that they went, they could have been doing a lot of things. They could have been having dating that boyfriend and girlfriend back home, and they could have been laid out by the pool or going to the beach. A lot of things that a lot of other people their age were doing. But they had a burden for sharing the gospel. They learned about an opportunity to do that in Brownsville, Texas. And these guys didn't, most of them I don't think knew each other at all. They showed up down there with one purpose, and that was to share the gospel. They didn't come to make money. If they did, they got on the wrong bus. If they didn't make any. As a matter of fact, you, you know, I imagine everybody wore out two or three good pairs of clothes and shoes, and it cost them money to be down there. They worked horribly long hours, as Faber said. It was not unusual, 10, 12, even 15, 16 hours sometimes, really long hours, really hot, really manual labor, and uh, just stuff that the most of us had not done at all uh, before. And I've heard more than one of them say the hardest they'd ever worked in their life, even 46 years later, they've never worked as hard and put in the hours that they did in Brownsville that summer. And why? There was only one reason to do that. The motive in their lives was not to go down there and meet some other people and have a good time or have adventure. They were there to share the gospel. And I believe one reason there's such a, a deep fellowship with them. This, this fellowship of the gospel, I think, describes it. And the reason it's there is because they spent that summer, they spent those almost three months going through hardship and going through hard things in order that they might be able to share the gospel. It was a real fellowship in the gospel. And that's made it last. That's made it last. There's some... Um, insights that Paul gives us. as he, it's The words he writes around this in these verses, he's writing about something else, but I think the correlation begins to come out uh, of this experience with the fellowship of gospel, the gospel and what it means. And some of the things he says are very meaningful, I think, to the experience 
of these summer missionaries and also to the experience of you as you have opportunities to share the gospel. Let me say, first of all, before I move to that, as a church and as a believer, if you want to build deep fellowship, uh, there's all kinds of ways to do it. Well, you need to, well, next Sunday is going to be a great opportunity. And uh, I'd love those potlucks where you bring in them the food and then you eat and you share. And that's a great opportunity for fellowship. But if you want to build the kind of fellowship that lasts and lasts and lasts and doesn't grow cold, find opportunities to go and minister and share the gospel together. Mission trips in your community, just, just where, you're, where you're in joint participation with one another, with no other motivation, no other goal other than to share the gospel with people who need it. There's, there's some insights we have. The first insight, I think, is found there in verse 5, uh, where we find our phrase. Paul talks about is he's talking about the fellowship of the gospel. He says, for your fellowship in the gospel for the first day until now. Now, I want to take note, because I'll forget to do it later, that for is fairly significant. It, it basically means that everything in the verses right before that are based upon that, what follows for. And so he's saying, for your fellowship of gospel, based on your fellowship of gospel, all the other things he says in 1 and 2 are related to that. But he says, your fellowship to the, for, in the gospel from the first day until now. The first day is when Paul showed up in Philippi, and he went out by a river, and there was Lydia and some women, and Lydia accepted Christ as her Savior. I entered into that, that fellowship of the gospel on that first level, that first dimension then. And that had been 10 years before Paul was writing this letter, roughly. Paul was in Philippi about three months, ministering there. And he had to leave. The next time he was in Philippi, was on, that was on his second missionary journey. On his third missionary journey, he's going to Greece, and he passes through Macedonia, and he comes back through Macedonia. One time it's mentioned that he was in Philippi. It's assumed he might very well have been there, both legs of that. We don't know. But there's a, probably not for very long. It was probably passing through, and, but he, was, he, he came through there at least one of those times. He gets back home, he goes to Jerusalem, he gets arrested, he ends up being in prison in Caesarea for two years, he takes six months, a really bad boat trip to get to Rome, with shipwrecks and all kinds of stuff happening, he gets to Rome, and then as he writes this letter, he's been uh, uh, close to two years in prison, probably then. So Paul had had time that first day, those first moments that he was with them, their time of real fellowship had been just almost 10 years before. He'd maybe seen them in just in passing once or twice since then. But even since that time, just from the time he was in prison and traveling, it had been at least five or six years since he had had any real contact, you know, physical contact with uh, any of the Philippians other than maybe a messenger that was sent. Uh, they sent him gifts and there was some communication but he had not really been with them. And so when he says from the first day until now, he's talking about a time period of like 10 years where he had had really very little physical contact and presence with those people. Now that tells me something, that one is that real fellowship 
that's described here as fellowship of the gospel is not fellowship where we have to be in a room together. That's fellowship, and we want that, and we need it, and it's very important to our spiritual life. But the fellowship that Paul is describing here is a fellowship that can survive 46 years with no contact, no presence, no proximity to one another, and still be just as warm and vibrant and real as it was from the first day. From the first day until now. The fellowship of the gospel is a fellowship that survives. It's a, it endures through time and separation. And I think we've experienced that in this reunion. It's really taught me. It's been, it's been so unique and so real. And again, once we look past the, fat, the fog of, of 46 years, it's just, you know, we're, we're right back where we were. And it's just so sweet. Fellowship of the gospel, there's a, there's a kind of fellowship that happens like that. You know, I think I have experienced that, not just with people that were, were, were friends and that I had been in fellowship with before, but on the mission field, we've had opportunities to meet people we've never seen before. There's cultural barriers, and there's all kinds of language barriers. Particularly, we have a son that's a missionary. He was in Nepal for three years, uh, just out of college, and then he went back. He's a career missionary in Central Asia. And we've been able to go to those places with him. And he takes us to meet people he works with. And uh, it's just, can't talk to him. Can't hear and understand. I have to talk to my son, everything we want to say, because I don't speak the language. There are all kinds of cultural barrier. But some of those people are just as warm and dear to me as somebody that I could have spent my whole life to. And from the moment we met them, it was like that. And it's just so precious. And it's just so wild that they can be like that. But that's the kind of fellowship when we're involved and when our goal is really on the, the importance of getting the gospel out. And that's our purpose. That's something that brings a bond into our lives that lasts and it endures. Look at the way Paul talks after all that time. Verse 7, uh, he, he says, I have you in my heart. You know, isn't that a, an expression of just how much he loved the people and how rich their fellowship was? Verse 8, he says, I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. Ten years <laughs> has passed. He's not really been around. They're not going out to drink coffee together, not going out to play games together or go on vacation together. They're hardly around each other at all. But when Paul remembers them, he has these deep, warm feelings of fellowship towards them. The second uh, insight that Paul gives us about this kind of fellowship is that fellowship in the gospel was the basis of Paul's thankful memories of the Philippians. Paul writes in uh, verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Isn't that, isn't that pretty neat? You know, Paul thought back over 10 years, and every time he remembered those people, he thought he was thankful. But you know, you need to look at, you know, when you look at, go back to chapter 16 in the book of Acts, when Paul, that's the time that Paul was in Philippi, and you read about that trip, Paul didn't even want to go to Philippi. He was trying to go to Asia. And God had to stop him in his tracks and say, no, you're going to Macedonia. I've had that happen to me. I don't know if you have, but it's frustrating. I mean, I'm kind of, a, I, like, I like ruts, and I like to get where I'm going and then just go there and nothing interfere. And there's times in my life where God has stopped me and said, you're going the wrong way. 
I'm sure Paul handled it better than I do, but I get very flustered with that. And it, it takes me some while to, to regain my, you know, my bearings and get my momentum back again. But that's what happened to Paul. Then he gets to Philippi, and he's used to going to the, the way he operates is he goes to the, the synagogues, and he preaches, and there's, there's uh, God-fearing Gentiles there. Some of them believe, and there's Jews there that believe, and the rest of them get mad and kick them out of the synagogue. Paul takes those guys that believed with him. That's the beginning of a church, and that's how he worked. He just built on that. He discipled those people, and that would be the beginning of the church. In Philippi, there was no, there was no synagogue. And there probably wasn't enough men there to have one. So he goes out by the river and he finds some women worshiping. Now, Paul usually started out with, with, with men. That was cultural and, and uh, you, get, you know, get men in and they influenced their families. And so the first converts in Philippi were, was Lydia and, and some women. And then that, and from there, because there's no synagogue, it didn't start the way he wanted to. They started a street ministry. Paul and Silas are going out on the street. And we, we're not told very much about that except that eventually there was a slave girl who was demon-possessed that began to harass them. Paul turns around and tells the demon to get out of her. He does. And then Paul's thank you for that was the guys that owned her and made money off of her demon possession because she was a fortune teller, took him and had him thrown in jail. And so Paul and Silas are thrown in prison or in jail. They're beaten with rods. They're whipped and they, with their beaten backs and their bleeding backs and probably some cracked ribs. They're put in stocks to spend the night in jail to teach them a good lesson. Get up the next morning, and basically the story goes to where they're told they got to sundown, sundown to get out of Dodge, and then they're gone. Three months. Now, if you had that trip, what kind of postcard do you send back? You say, yo, yo, we're having a great time. It wasn't that kind of trip. But Paul looks back at that. He doesn't remember being beaten. He doesn't remember any frustrations about, about the, his usual way of operating, not being uh, uh, available to him. He doesn't remember any of that. He remembers Lydia had life changing. And, and even some people believe that little slave girl got saved after that demon was cast out of her. And he would remember that girl, the way her life changed. And the, the jailer that was there in that prison uh, where they were that was saved after uh, the earthquake came and, and, and they could have escaped and they didn't. All those different people came to Christ as a result of the gospel, and Paul remembered how God used him there, and how lives were changed as a result of his presence in Philippi. And when he looked back, he didn't remember that hardship. He remembered the blessing of seeing God work through him to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I've heard over and over, Faber just now, the, the ship being cast out, you know, uh, that summer was hard. It was very hard. We talked about the labor and the work. And uh, one, of my, my, one of my most vivid memories of that summer was looking at my friend Debbie back there. We, we told we, everybody was expecting a nap or something. And we were told we had to go load up a truck. And, and uh, it was just one of those really bad times we didn't want to. And so we took everybody out and we're doing all this work. And I looked over at Debbie and she was sitting over under a tree and she had this look on her face that said, what have I done? You know, it was just really, uh, it was hard. And we all were there from time to time. But, you know, when we look back, we remember it was hard. 
And we talk about, we had some good laughs about some of the stuff and Brother Bob Clements and how much of a slave driver he was. This guy was just so driven to get the gospel and get that work done that he just ran over people, you know, to, to get it done. And, it, and he didn't, it didn't bother him that you were tired and you needed rest because that needed to be done for the next thing to be done. And that's just, it just kind of a, a momentum just kept going there. And there wasn't much rest in it. But we don't really think about those things. You know, the thing that people remember is, is, is some child in the vacation Bible school where they taught that accepted Christ as her Savior. Uh, Carol said that she's, she's had some of those she's still in touch with, and that need. And, uh, and others are, are that way. It's lives that were changed. And, and God used you in a way that perhaps you had never been used before. My, I was in summer missions uh, several years, as a, well, three years as a, as a summer missionary before we were back down and trying to supervise a summer missionaries for two years while I was in seminary. I remember that first summer, sermon, summer was so difficult. But I remember for the first time in my life, and I had serious doubts that this would ever happen. God, I felt God was calling me to ministry. I got to East Texas Baptist College, and uh, I started being around other guys called to ministry, and I just thought, man, I'm not one of these guys. I, I don't have the personality. I don't have the knowledge of the Bible. I, I'm, not, I'm not outgoing. I'm not, you know, I, don't, I, I don't have the great speaking skills these guys have. And I just didn't see God using me very much. I was just really, uh, you know, really concerned about that. And I had this opportunity to go to Brownsville. I got down there. And I saw God use my life for the first time. You know, and I saw him work through me to be a blessing to others. And it was just a confidence flooded into me that, yes, you know, maybe I couldn't and I didn't have the ability. But if I allowed myself to be where God wanted me to be, he could use me. And he did. And I remembered that. And I am so thankful when I look back on all the time I spent in Brownsville. And uh, my, so many things I took with me to Zambia, I would have never been able to do that if I had not had that time there and God's blessing to my life as a result of it. Paul was thankful, and we can be thankful as well. But now the third insight that he gives us is the fellowship in the gospel was the basis for Paul's joyful praying. Paul says in the fourth verse, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. When we got to Zambia, something that was a real adjustment in our, our first you know, year, or the first years there, we got out and, and we were in a remote area out in the eastern province. And we started writing home and, you know, had, you know, wanted to have communication. And we found out that it took a month to six weeks for a letter we wrote to arrive at home. And often a month to six weeks for a letter to get back to us. Sometimes it would be faster, and sometimes they didn't arrive at all. Uh, but I, I began to realize, and until there was a phone in our house, that it was just kind of a symbol that there were phone lines and there were phones that worked, but ours most of the time did not. And when it did... It wasn't a good enough phone line that we could actually make an international call. So we couldn't call home from where we lived. We had to wait till we were in the capital. And when we called then, it cost like $6 a minute to talk to the U.S. So you couldn't just have these long-winded chats, you know, to catch back up. And so this communication was just nearly dead. I'd been a pastor, and so much of my prayer life was built around 
prayer requests, you know, especially that I picked up on Wednesday night prayer time and, and, and out of the bulletin and people would call me about needs and just had all these prayer needs that were around me. When I got to the field, I didn't have any of those. I didn't know what was going on in anybody's life. I didn't know what my mother's needs were or what my brother or my sister or any of my friends. It, it was like all of a sudden I was totally cut off of that and my prayer life kind of floundered during that. I, I, you know, I, I had to find a new way to pray. And one of the things that helped me through that is I began to look at Paul's prayers. You know, Paul never prayed for those kind of things that we find on our prayer list. I don't, I don't find that one time. Listen to what Paul prayed in, in for, the, the, for the Philippians in, in verse 9. He said, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, and then that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus, to the glory and praise of God. Now you break that down and look at all the things that are in there, that your love, that you have a abounding love, growing love in your heart, and that, and that you're, you may make excellent choices in your life, and that you be filled with fruits of righteousness. Somebody can pray for me that for me every day. I need it. And Paul knew how to cut to the chase when it came to praying. Paul was in the same situation we were. He was isolated. They couldn't get mails, and he wasn't getting prayer requests. He didn't know who was sick. He didn't know who was going through hard times. But he knew what they needed even beyond what those concerns were. Now, don't misunderstand me, please. We just need to pray for people who have physical needs and material needs. My friend Faber, ever since he shared with me about the cancer, every time I have a personal prayer time, I pray for Faber. We, we met with him, we prayed for him last night, and we're crying out for him to be healed, and we should do that, and we need to do that. But I think one thing Paul teaches us in his prayers that we need to realize that as much as we want Faber to be healed, and as urgent as that is for it to happen, that's not the greatest need he has in his life every day. You know, when I pray for Faber, I pray for him to be healed, but I pray that that day he'll be filled with the Spirit and that he'll walk in the Spirit, that he won't fulfill the lust of the flesh and that God would use him and that, that he'll confess his sins and that all of those things that we need to have in our daily walk will be real there. And I just try to find some things that not only have to do with keeping him on this earth for longer so he can do the ministry he has here, but things that will go with him into eternity when God does decide to take him. No matter how much we pray for his body, it's still going to go there. And we know if we spend all of our prayers praying for things that are just here and now, we've missed the major point. Jesus said in Matthew the 6th, uh, chapter the 33 verse, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's a good guideline for our prayer life. And we really need to be careful that we don't just pray for all these concerns that are here and temporal. We do need to pray for those. But we need to learn to pray like Paul. Look at some of the things Paul prayed for. We already looked at Philippians, the first chapter, the ninth verse, Ephesians 1, 17, wisdom and knowledge. He, t he prays for them to have, and then he just goes on to other things. Ephesians 1.18, insight into the hope and the riches in Christ that they would have that. In 2 Thessalonians 1.11, be counted worthy, of the, that they would be counted worthy of their call. 
But I'd love to do a series. I don't know if I'll ever get to preach a series again, but I would love to do one on the prayers of Paul. There's so much to learn there about how we really ought to pray. He prayed a lot of those things because he was praying for churches. And he prayed those kind of general things when he prayed for believers because he didn't have, but he wasn't able to know all their needs. If Paul knew that, he prayed for them to be healed and he prayed for those other things. But it's so important that we see to it that our prayer life is not only praying for this world and the needs here, but it points into eternity. We need to pray like Paul. And then the last thing, and I'm just going to touch this, and time is gone, but Paul, fellowship, Paul, fellowship of gospel, Paul taught us, is enhanced, and it enhanced Paul's confidence that God would sustain the Philippians' faith in their service to the end. Paul said in verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. One of the really neat things that Faber mentioned coming out of all of this is when we get together and we're, we're still together with the Lord. We're still walking. We, we haven't been together and we haven't had anything to do with each other for 46 years. But out of 14 young people, two went to be with the Lord. The rest are still walking with him and serving him and, and bearing fruit for him and involved in the fellowship of the gospel on that deeper dimension. And only one is not with us in that. Isn't that kind of amazing? Uh, kids from the 1970s, this was the dropout generation. You know, throw it all away. And our generation were the ones that were going against everything their parents believed. But here's a group of kids that God got a hold of their life and then he bonded them, and he, he, he cemented it into their lives through a summer of service and sharing the gospel and hardship and suffering and all that came with it, and God has made it stick. And it's not just sticking now. The really thing, neat thing about this verse to me is he says he will complete it. He didn't just start it. God started it. God has brought it to this point, but he's going to complete it. But he's not just completing it until we die. He says he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I might die tomorrow. But what this passage is saying is that if I die tomorrow, the work that God is bringing to completion in my life doesn't die with me. It keeps going. It keeps going. For the ministries that you have in your life, for the lives that you touch, for the, 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 the people that, that come to know Christ as a result of your life and your testimony, and, and people whose lives are changed as a result of you teaching a Sunday school class or some kind of involvement that you give, where God touches lives, He will keep that going long after you're gone. And that influence just continues to spread and spread. And there's a tally being taken, and that tally doesn't stop until we stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, and he lets us know where it all went. Uh, David Jeremiah helped me with that. He said, you know, the reason we don't, a lot of people think that they'll get to heaven, walk in the door, and they'll get rewards. They won't. They'll wait. Paul's still waiting for his. Abraham's still waiting for his. All of us will wait. And with all that tally, all the influence of all that time, there will be rewards that come as a result of it. Then. Is that a neat, neat thing to really look forward to? I went to, uh, we, one of the things we did in Brownsville was we, uh, there was an orphanage and a clinic there. Uh, we went back to Brownsville. We took a vacation. We were home. We went to, to really take our kids to Brownsville where we had served. 
And so we went down there and we went to South Padre Island and went over to Matamoros to the market and let them throw some money away on the stuff that they have there. And then I took a chance that I could find my way back out to the orphanage. I didn't know if I could or not, but I did. It all came back to me. We drove up at the orphanage, and this nice-looking young uh, Mexican man came out, and uh, Cindy helped me with his name. He came out and uh, helped me with it again. His name was Saul, Saul. And he came out, and, and uh, he asked how he could help us. And uh, so I started explaining to him. I said, I was a summer missionary down here. And I started explaining, and he stopped, and he said, I, he saw Betty and me. He said, I know you. He said, I remember you. He was one of the orphans that grew up. Well, the first time we went down there, that, that orphan building, the big building, you remember, it was just walls. And the rafters were starting to be put up, but for the most part, it was a canvas tent that was hung under there, and the kids were living under that canvas. And he says, I remember you being here when we got a roof over our church. And he thanked me. And he said, I saw you and others like you coming down year after year. And he said, it made a tremendous impact on my life. This guy grew up. He was an orphan. And him and his wife both were orphans there. He grew up. Got an education. I think he came to America. I'm not sure about that. Dallas Baptist or somewhere. Got a degree. He's back. He's pastoring. And he's now the director of that orphanage. And God is using his life. And he's influencing people. And he's touching people's lives. And people are being saved. And they're influencing people. And your fingerprints, you guys, are on all of that. And you'll get to, before the judgment seat of Christ, you'll get to see it. What are all that's gone? And the same thing for everyone here. Whatever you touch and let Jesus touch through you, God is continuing to complete it. Lord, I thank you so much for your, your word, and I thank you, Father, for just a tremendous encouragement it is for us to, to have a special thing happen and then be able to find that that's something that even Paul experienced in a different way, and that he, he gave us information there that, that help us explain to us what's going on in our lives. And Father, I pray that you'll help us uh, just so regularly to be involved in the fellowship of the gospel on every dimension so that you can build bonds in our life and that you can help us to be uh, changed more and more into your likeness and be drawn closer together and that you'll build stuff in our life that lasts. And Father, we just thank you for the promise that you're not through with us and you're not through with the work you're doing in us, but that you will complete it. And Father, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, they haven't entered into that fellowship of the gospel by receiving Jesus Christ and believing the gospel, I pray that they, you will just speak to their hearts and help that to happen. If somebody needs to make another kind of decision. We give this time to you right now in Jesus' name.